Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. By this point it is abundantly plain there is something desperately wrong with our country. Something very wrong, fundamentally wrong with America. Some of the most uh, blatant and heinous crimes imaginable are now sanctioned by law. We have government-authorized murder at both of the ends of life, the beginning and its end. Uh, Adultery, winked at, and sexual perversions, even worse approved, ratified by law. We have been uh, witnesses to theft on the grandest scale imaginable. And the nation's moral degeneration certainly seems to be accelerating. It doesn't seem to be slowing down. It seems uh, to be running along downhill now at an uncontrolled pace. We have trouble understanding our world, trouble understanding what's going on around us. What has happened? How have we come to this point? These questions are difficult because um, the country is large. The participants, many, the dynamics, complex. And perhaps we'll never get the puzzle fully solved But some things are clear. Some things can be discerned. And that's helpful. One of the roots of our current moral declension is certainly the rejection of the first table of the law at the founding of our nation and in its constitution. Our nation wanted to pretend early on that you can have a commitment to the second table of the law without the first. And so the United States government, from its first founding, wanted to remain noncommittal on the question, who is God? And uh, if you remain noncommittal on that, aspects of uh, what he commands concerning worship, and whether or not there is um, a particular day of obligation to rest and worship and so on, all of these questions fall to the ground. They don't really mean very much if you've not made any decision about who is God. And um, in some ways, this might sound strange, and I only half mean it, but um, it's at least partially understandable, isn't it? The religious wars of Europe left a bad taste in in the mouths even of religious people, even of committed Christians. And so Christians uh, decided that they would uh, participate in the skepticism game on public matters. We will just pretend that issues pertaining to religion are mere opinion that these things really can't be known 
and that there isn't any definitive answer to who is God. Let every man um, answer as it seems right in his own eyes. And so without any notion of the identity of God, the rest of the first table of the law simply falls to the ground. And the government has ever refused to descend into these sorts of issues. But now we get a rather grand historical lesson, and it's not the first time it's been taught. Without the first table of the law, without the authority of the true and living God of the Bible, delivering that first table of the law, the second table of his law will not stand. And so now we run as a nation into some of the most uh, egregious evils against which the natural, the native conscience of man cries out. We know that this is wickedness, but having set side to God to the side, we have trouble proving it. So this is uh, the short answer, one of the roots. If uh, we remain noncommittal on who is God, the rest of morality, first and second table, all come crashing down to the ground. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. He becomes uh, the God. What does that have to do with our text? Quite a lot. You remember the history. The Lord has been sorely provoked by his visible church, her anti-Christianism and her idolatry. The West has fallen to the barbarians. The East has fallen to the Muslims. And there is no repentance in East or West. Look again at verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood. So remember, the, the scene shifts back to the West. The, um, the Eastern uh, Empire has just been portrayed to us as politically slain, killed, destroyed. That doesn't mean all of, there were no people anymore, no population. It just means politically it's been destroyed. And so now we shift our scene westward to the rest of men that were not killed by... Uh, the Turkish invasion. And we're told in no uncertain terms that they were impenitent with respect to their religious declension, with respect to their sins against the first table of the law. They continue on in their anti-Christianism in the worship of demons. Remember the definition of that word, like the old pagans, their deified heroes, uh, they seek them out as mediators. So the one and only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, is pushed into the background. And all of these others, this pantheon of saints, comes into the foreground. And of course, uh, some of the grossest idolatry imaginable was connected to the cult of the martyrs. And it's displayed for us in the text. Men professing the Christian religion, falling down before statues of gold, silver, stone, and wood. Something expressly forbidden. And so we ask the question, well, when the first table falls, what happens to the second? And so we get verse 21. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So they refused to repent with respect to their religious declension, their anti-Christianism and idolatry, and neither will they repent of their broader moral declension, matters pertaining to the second table of the law. And as we'll see in a few moments, the religion that they create for themselves, and that's really what they're doing, the religion that they create for themselves, um, first of all, undergirds uh, the moral declension that they desire. 
And then it becomes a mutually supporting circle. They can create religion, a religion that will support whatever wickedness that they contrive concerning other men. And as their appetite to do wickedness to others grows, they'll simply modify the religion to support it. And it just continues to go in a vicious circle. We'll talk more about that in a few moments, about how it works. We're given some specifics of their moral declension so very suitable to the uh, Middle Ages in the Western Roman Empire. Murders, sorceries, fornication, and thefts. A pretty good description of Romanism for a thousand years. This morning we'll look at just one, uh, and that is their murders, and that will really be enough. The Roman Church, historically, really since the 7th century, has manifest hatred for God's religion and God's people. Hatred, you say? That sounds strong. Uh, A hatred that uh, burned with such ferocity that they destroyed men by the thousands. That's a hatred indeed. However, what we find throughout the Middle Ages is that Roman animosity to the true mediator was uh, constantly erupting into murderous persecutions. And for those of you that know a little bit about the Middle Ages, and you don't need to know much, in some ways, uh, I might be able to just stop at this point with respect to historical proof. If you know something about what are sometimes called the uh, the proto-Reformation groups, some of those early medieval groups that uh, were returning to the scripture and wanting to reform the church based upon the scriptures, you'll know that um, uh, persecution after persecution was authorized uh, by the Roman church to put these down. And all I have to give you, I give you two words and you'll know it. Inquisition and crusades. And you should remember that not all of the crusades were were directed against the Muslims in the East. Uh, There were probably more, I don't know, not done a tally, but probably more authorized against dissenters in the West for their extermination. So let me give you a, a brief historical illustration of this because I don't think much more is necessary. And I'm going to do much more with this at a later time because uh, this history uh, will be detailed uh, under the the prophecy pertaining to the two witnesses during the Middle Ages. Uh, And so we'll talk some more about these groups and what we know about them from, from history. But I want to take you back to the 12th century, the Italian and French Alps, to a group known as the Waldensians, or the um, 1100s. A man by the name of Waldo, their their namesake, translated the scriptures into a French dialect because what he wanted to do was teach the scriptures. He wanted to teach them to the people immediately, not through the lens of Uh, church teaching and doctrine, but he wanted to give the people the Bible and teach the Bible and seek a reformation uh, for the church by the scriptures. Sound familiar? You should know that the reformation that worked wasn't the first attempt. There was an ongoing cry as uh, the moral bankruptcy was a constant offense to the native conscience of men. People were constantly crying out for for a reformation of uh, the church. The purity of the lives of the Waldenses is recognized even by their Roman prosecutors. So uh, uh, God charges the Roman church with murders and thefts and fornication, but you should know the Romanists weren't charged charging the Waldenses with these things. They recognized the purity of the lives of these people. And how did the Roman church receive the scriptures? It's striking to put it that way, but that's really what we're talking about. 
how did the Roman church receive the scriptures? And I want to make a division here because it, it creates constant confusion. I'm not talking about what monks are doing away in their monastery. They'd copy Bibles. They like to look at the Bible and read it and everything else like that. I'm talking about parish by parish, parish clergymen and people, almost complete ignorance with respect to the Bible, and a, and a hierarchy, Pope and Cardinal, some of whom did know something about the Bible, but they did not want it disseminated. It reminds me of, of Luther's interview with Cajetan, and Cajetan complained to Luther. He said, if you put the Bible in the hands of uh, uh, the common people, how are they going to understand it? Even scholars can't get to the bottom of the mystery that is the scripture. Uh, the people need the scripture interpreted for them by the church. And Luther said, give the common people the scripture and they will understand just how broad the church's interpretations are. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that that was very powerfully said. So how did the Roman church receive the scriptures? The translation was denounced by the Pope, Innocent III. There was at least a partial suppression the burning of books. In our day and age, this never works anymore because of the printing press. But this was, um, uh, this really put the life of a book in jeopardy if it was done widespread because it was so time consuming and so expensive to produce even one copy. It give you some sense of scale. A complete edition of the Bible, hand copied by somebody, cost like a, a peasant's, wages for 15 years <laughs> give you some idea of how expensive it was so to have these being destroyed by the hundreds uh, really threatens the book indeed uh, in addition to this uh, and i'm just focusing on the waldensians although other dissenters were condemned in these bulls but from 1183 to 1208 uh, they were condemned over and over again in in papal bulls so this is uh, somewhat of a theme during the time. And in 1215, uh, a crusade was authorized by the Roman See against dissenters. And this is what was promised, a plenary absolution to such as should perish in this holy war. So this is not just directed against the Muslims. This holy war against Western European Christians who just want to read and teach the Bible. A plenary absolution to all, to such as uh, perish in this holy war of all sins committed from the day of their birth to that of their death. And it unleashed a bloody, murderous scourge. And the dissenters were killed by the thousands. It's during this same period of time that the Inquisition was erected to seek out dissenters and the history of the uh, inquisition is written in blood the inquisition has ever been infamous for its uh, bloodshed so as you uh, leave the 12th century and enter into the 13th century these are the new roman measures for dealing with these dissenters i include this because i i think that this is just this captures the whole thing in the nut a nutshell. One of the first indications that the court would look for in a heresy trial, when it's one of the first indications of heresy in a defendant, he cites the Bible. Isn't that in so here you're in a church court, if the defendant cites the Bible to defend himself, he is de facto in their eyes shown to be guilty. You are obviously one of these dissenting heretics with these Bible citations. And off you would go to your death. They continued in the in the suppression of translations. If not just making one, if you were caught reading one, it could be capital. You could be put to death for it, for owning one and reading one, as a, as a common person. And of course, the Inquisition uh, was uh, a means used for. Um, too many centuries to suppress dissenters. Uh, interestingly enough, there are still Waldensians. 
they still exist. You still find them in France and, and other places. As a matter of fact, I, I watched a very interesting documentary one time about a, uh, a Waldensian community hiding French Jews during World War II. Uh, very interesting as they continue to uh, confess and profess the same ancient faith. All these, uh, a great many of the Waldensians, however, just joined into the larger Reformation churches when the Reformation came. I anticipate myself. 14th century, you have the, the rise of Wycliffe and his poor preachers, the Lollards. And of course, Wycliffe also committed the unpardonable sin. He translated the Bible into English, and then he sent men out to preach that Bible uh, to the people. They couldn't kill Wycliffe in his lifetime, so they condemned him afterwards, uh, dug up his bones, and burned them a sign of their hatred for the word of God and anyone who would dare to open it to the people. I think this is very significant. The very next scene in Revelation is the covenant angel descending with what? Open Bible in his hand and preaching. Roars with the voice uh, of a lion. The Bible open again for the people. One generation after Wycliffe and the Lollards and probably because the Lollards made their way down into Bohemia, you have the rise of the Hussites. Uh, John Huss, Jerome of uh, Prague, and their uh, Reformation movement, all uh, violently suppressed. You know the end of Huss and uh, Jerome. And the wars. Roman Catholic Church made war upon the Bohemian uh, Hussites. And we'll talk about that, that also more in... Uh, um, coming chapters, chapter 13 in particular. Now remember what the scriptures told us. It said they repented not. So that tells us something of what they were doing before. And because they're not repenting, it lets us know what they continue to do after. After the fall of Constantinople, things did not change. Uh, the Pope, interestingly enough, now the Turks have, have taken Constantinople the Roman church actually ends up um, choosing a pope that they thought best able to deal with the Turkish menace. But the first th thing that he does is proclaim a crusade, not against the Turks, but against the Hussites. And immediately that pope made war on the Hussites just a few years after uh, the fall of Constantinople. In uh, 1477 and 1488... Those popes authorized war against the Waldensians and the Italian and French Alps. Uh, just to give you, um, whole books have been have been written on these things. But just to give you uh, a picture, a snapshot. Um, even this morning, as we have been trying to stir ourselves up to sympathize with our brethren in other parts, uh, I hope that this will stir you up. These were these were real living men, women, and children, our brethren, people who loved the Lord. Um, once a uh, group told, of course, they're in the Alps, mountainous region. The Alps kept the Waldensians safe for a lot of years. They knew the Alps, knew how to escape, and so on. But one particular group uh, retired into some high mountainous caverns, seeking refuge from the persecution. They were found by... Uh, French soldiers, and so the surrounding mountain was set ablaze to try to smoke them out. Of course, uh, some were slain trying to escape. Some, just to escape the flames, uh, cast themselves off the mountainside and perished, uh, plummeting to their deaths. A great many others uh, gave way to smoke and fire in the caverns themselves. In just this one engagement, 3,000 died. And when they went into the caverns, that included 400 infants um, smothered by the smoke and the flames in their, in their mother's arms. This is what, uh, what the Roman church was doing to people who wanted to read the Bible and wanted to hear the Bible preached so that they might understand. So when we talk about... Um, I want you to understand, we're not just you know, throwing stones at the 
sweet and naive Franciscan that's, so he seems, sitting upon the papal chair now. This is bad. And when and when Protestants, you can start to understand why it was the universal doctrine of Protestants. This is anti-Christianism. This is this is the worship of demons. This is the suppression of the word of God. They don't want people to read, understand uh, the Bible. And they'll kill you if you want to know Jesus Christ from the scriptures. They will kill you. Uh, this is very bad. So just some numbers. So that's part of part of the war. The numbers uh, from the Inquisition in the 30 years before Luther's Reformation begins to take off. 13,000 burned for heresy. 13,000. Another 9,000 almost burned in effigy. So people they couldn't get their hands on, but they wished that they could. And uh, 169,000 others condemned to other forms of punishment. 169,000 others. Now, um, to understand all of this, we have to understand the vicious circle of the religion and the morality. The religion and the morality. The religion, the Roman religion... Uh, supports all this and did support all of it. It did did it in some very obvious ways. These crusades and the Inquisition were sanctioned by who? By the Pope and even by the highest councils of the church. Uh, The men in authority said, yes, this seems like a good idea to us. Uh, These religious institutions were erected specifically to persecute it wasn't just they erected these for some other purpose and they went wrong or something like that. Uh, they erected these things to root out, to extirpate uh, the dissenters. The picture, when they think that they have finally done it in the days of Leo Tenth, when they think they have finally destroyed all of the dissenter uh, churches, the way it's portrayed in, uh, in Revelation chapter 11 is they rejoice. And, uh, and we'll, we'll look at those historical documents under Leo X. It doesn't last very long because they received a mighty resurrection in Luther. A very unexpected uh, historical development. And uh, one final thing about the obvious ways their religion supported this. They had a whole theological system that terminated in indulgences and the way that they would fund their crusades is by promising people the forgiveness of their sins. So you go, and no matter what atrocities you commit in war, because you're doing it under our sanction, all of it will be forgiven. Indeed, all of the sins of your whole life will be forgiven. So go shed blood. Go shed blood. But there are some ways that are are less obvious, but I think no less profound do you remember the dynamic of of the pagans with their old heathen gods? So they, because they're fallen and they're sinners, and they're inventing a religion for themselves, they invent gods that will be approvers of their sins. Gods that look very much like them. Sometimes gods that are worse. You don't have to do very much reading in, in Greco-Roman mythology to think, these gods are evil. These, they are bad. They are bad. Again, natural conscience cries out against these things. The, the incest, the murder, and all of these sorts of things. It's awful. Uh, and frequently, um, the behavior of the gods then, that they had invented for themselves, then became the justification for their own actions and behavior. So you might think of Bacchus, for example, the god of wine and revelry. And so when they would worship Bacchus, what would they do? They would indulge all of their sensual appetites. And why not? Bacchus does. He delights in these sorts of things. So you see um, you know, religion and morality going in something of a, of a vicious circle. And so it was in Romanism. The, uh, 
the demons that they were erecting for themselves. And, and realize, I'm going to use some Bible names here, but the Bible people aren't in view. These are the gods that they've invented for themselves. But their crusades were frequently authorized under the names of St. Peter and St. Paul. In other words, when the Pope would write and he would pronounce his condemnation and authorize the crusade, he would do it in the name of Peter and Paul as if, as if Peter and Paul were, uh, as if they were thirsty for the blood of these that would make bold to read their writings. Isn't that something? But Peter and Paul portrayed as bloodthirsty, authorizing their bloodthirstiness. And it just continues to go in a circle. This might be a little surprising, but the Virgin Mary has always been held to be a special patroness of the Inquisition. But a very different Mary than what you find in the scripture. A bloodthirsty, a bloody Mary who desires uh, uh, the death and the bloodshed of these that would come to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, ostensibly her son, right? Um, so you see, you see the, the pattern and how it moves in a circle. They worship their demons. Their demons are authorizing all of this wickedness, approving of all the wickedness in their heart. And it just keeps getting worse and worse with every uh, round on the merry-go-round. And so uh, a doctrine and a use... Uh, religious declension tends toward moral declension, whether in an individual or in a corporation or some sort of, some sort of corporate body of people. Um, so uh, my, my doctrine is somewhat modestly stated. I don't know if the ignoring of the first table always leads, leads to the overthrowing of the second table. It probably does. Uh, but I can at least say with absolute certainty that it tends very much toward it. Ignoring, overturning, and perverting the first table tends very much uh, to end in the ignoring, overturning, and perverting of the second table of the law. And this is true whether you're considering an individual or a corporate body of people. These are the ends. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Paul gives didactically what is given to us by way of historical illustration in Revelation chapter 9. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold... Kateko uh, in, in uh, Greek is the verbal root, suppress, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not just hold it, but hold it down. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So they, they know God. God has made himself manifest in them. He showed himself to them. But they, they're described here as suppressing that truth. They don't want to think about it. Just push it down, push it down. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So um, God is a spirit, he is invisible, but Paul is saying that it, by the things that have been made and are visible, the invisible, God himself, at least as far as his eternal power and his Godhead, have been clearly revealed. In other words, the heavens declare the glory of God. The creation is shouting aloud uh, concerning her creator and some of the most basic and fundamental truths concerning him. This is an apologetics clue, if I might say by way of uh, digression. When you are witnessing to somebody and they talk about their, their intellectual problems with the Christian faith and so on, 
They can't admit it to themselves, but you know right away that they're not being honest with you or with themselves. And you need to keep that in mind as you're deciding what you're going to talk to them about and what you're not going to talk to them about. Paul says that the problem with sinful men is not an information problem. And we frequently make that mistake. If I just give him the right information, then he will acknowledge God. Then he will be a believer. That's not the problem. Paul says they know that there's a God. They suppress. They already know it. So when you go into a witnessing encounter, you've already got that in the bank. They already know that what you are getting ready to tell them is true. And you know that they know it's true. Let's keep that in mind. It's a helpful thing to uh, remember. So they are without excuse, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Now here's another clue. Paul says the problem is not, not the head, the problem is the heart. They don't want to worship him. They don't want to glorify him. They don't want to obey him. That's why they suppress. How uncomfortable a person would be to go on in a sinful course, loving his sin, fostering and nurturing his sinful nature, knowing that the end of it, he's going to be destroyed in eternal hellfire. Too uncomfortable. So you suppress the knowledge of that. You press that down so that you can have some measure of comfort in your, in your sinfulness. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they want... Uh, they they want to exchange some things. Uh, we don't want this uncorruptible God who condemns our sins. This makes us uncomfortable. So we're going to make an exchange. We're going to exchange the glory of the divine being. And we're going to create a different religion for ourselves. And we're going to fashion it after the likeness of the creature. Even in our own image, we're going to invent for ourselves a God who will be an approver of our sins. A God who will, at the very least, wink at these things, but approve these things, pass these things by. A God with whom we can be at peace while we are yet in our sins. And uh, the consequences, verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up, to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For our purposes, I want you to notice now the move from the first table to the second table. And here it's characterized... And at least part of its explanation is a judicial hardening by God himself. God also gave them up to uncleanness. It works something like this. Nature declares God and his glory. It's a clear teaching of nature. But if you deny one obvious teaching of nature arbitrarily because you love your sins... What's to prevent you from denying other obvious truths of nature? Like the obligation of a, a child to a parent. And I don't mean to be um, uh, crass, but the illustration here is human sexual function. I mean, what could be more obvious than that? An obvious teaching of nature we see all around us. We just deny another obvious truth of nature. Um, and so we just run headlong. This is a judicial hardening. The only thing that prevents, having denied one obvious truth of nature, the only thing that prevents us from running on headlong is God himself, who restrains. But God says he won't restrain forever. He will lift his hand and give them up 
and let them just go on uh, denying one obvious truth after another. But notice here, the first movement was in the first table. They deny the one obvious truth that there is a God, and now he gives them up uh, to uh, deny uh, obvious things from the second table. Verse 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even then their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, man with man working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. So if you deny nature's obvious teaching concerning our religious obligation, we deny uh, the being or the authority of the true and living God, it won't be long before we cast off uh, the other obligations that are dictated to us in nature with respect to human society and our interpersonal uh, relationships one with another. Notice here again, he emphasizes it again. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And notice here this other bit of knowledge that's ascribed to them, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So the problem here is not information. When there is the willful denial, maybe I might say it like this. So our, our culture wants us to believe something like this, and all too frequently they get us to cooperate. We should never cooperate. They say, well... You know, these religious questions have always been so embroiled in controversy. I mean, who can ever know for sure who God is or what God wants from us in our relationship to him? Paul says it's written right on the face of nature. And most of it, uh, at least the, the primary obligations, derived right from nature, even if you never see a Bible your whole life. That there is a God that is to be worshipped, that is to be reverenced, uh, and that time is to be set aside and due in fitting proportion of time to honor him. You know, all of these things are obvious truths of uh, nature. So our culture wants to say, let's, let's set all of that aside. Those are all very doubtful things after all. But we'll keep the second table because after all, we all know that we shouldn't be killing folks and committing adultery and stealing. And a century passes and then they're like, well, how did we know that again? <laughs> that we shouldn't be murdering and so on. What if, what if I can present good reasons that it's inconvenient to support the life of that person or that it's bad for society as a whole? Should uh, the rights of that individual be weighed as more important than the rights of society as a whole? And so little bit by little bit, you begin to get the erosion of the second table. And when you get to the end of it, um, even you know the image of God remains. There's vestiges of it in the conscience, even of fallen men. In the consciences of fallen men are crying out, this is evil. This is bad. This is messed up. What people in the history of the world have ever done these things or approved of these things? Um, it all started with the falling of the first. Uh, if, there, if there is no God or we don't have any clear intelligence on who he might be, 
then we are left vulnerable to all of these other forms of uh, argumentation and, and rationale. If God is not upon the throne, you can be sure somebody else will climb up there and begin to uh, deliver rules for us. Uh, our nation is simply living again um, a historical experiment that has already been conducted at great length. <coughs> Romanism did this for uh, a thousand years. Indeed, it's an experiment still going for a millennium and a half. You overturn the first table, the second table falls. Even if you take to yourself the name Christian and you call yourself a church. They decided they wanted to push the true God and God's Christ into the background. They wanted to make these other uh, mediators the center of their uh, religion. And they wanted to worship them by stones, no matter what God might say about that. And before you know it, the whole thing begins to erode. The, these reports that you hear about the immorality of the clergy, and everybody always acts so shocked. This has been going on for a millennium and a half. There's not anything that's shocking or new about these things. And you can be sure that, that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg. And it's still the Roman policy to cover up all that stuff and deal with it in-house. They do not like it when it gets exposed. We just cover it up. We deal with it in our own courts. Because in principle, you should know that as far as Rome is concerned, her priests are not subject to the civil magistrate, even in crimes. If they can hide him and bring him into their own courts, that's what they'll do. They do not believe that this magistrate has any civil authority over uh, her priests. Religion and morality. Going in that that vicious circle, in this in this particular case. Now, what I what I have pointed out about, obviously, if we're going to deny the authority of God in the first, we're going to deny it in the second, uh, ultimately. And these principles, uh, I think everybody can say, would apply whether you're talking about an individual heart or a collection of hearts in a corporation of some sort, whether it be civil, ecclesiastical, or otherwise. If that corporation is pleased to pretend like there's no God, get ready. Because history has uh, illustrated the end of that matter time and time again. Uh, you can be sure that the second table will, uh, will fall. And so our uh, illustration here from our text and from, from history is a warning to the church and to the state. I'll tell you a story I hope that you'll find this, this interesting because I had uh, uh, passed before my eyes, I, I thought, a, a very striking illustration of this very thing. And I thought, that's the sermon that I'm preparing. So um, uh, Amanda's been following a, a, a particular blogger who shall remain nameless, a Christian person. And um, this person is a Canadian and... Uh, they have a national public radio, too. She had a particular program that she liked. The host of that program got fired. Not an easy thing to do in government work. Got fired because of uh, complaints concerning morality. Even harder to do in government work. But it happened. Now, this man, this talk show host, he's not a Christian, not a professing Christian or anything like that. But he did write a defense of himself, a public defense. When he had gotten in trouble, there was a group of women that came forward. He was involved in some of the sexual immorality, bondage, and all of these. And some women came forward complaining of physical abuse in these contexts. And he defended himself. He said, we were mutually consenting, and there, was, there were safe words if they didn't like it, so they can opt out at any time. I didn't do anything wrong. Now, uh, you would think that natural conscience just cry out, that everybody would think, this is, this is dark. Uh, to take that, uh, that, that beautiful God-given manifestation of love and to wed it with violence, this is dark. This is sickening. It ought to be. And if it's not sickening to us, we need to stir ourselves up because this is dark. 
So then, the, so this Christian blogger, having read all of this, writes, I think, a very obvious blog. Christians should not be involved in this sort of thing. This is dark. This is evil. Stay away from all of these sorts of things. Right? Obvious. The outcry against her from Christians who follow her blog. Amazing. This woman's not a legalist, but, uh, you know, accusations of legalism. You're not going to legislate for me in my bedroom. Uh, she's not legislating anything. There is a God in heaven that rules over the affairs of men. She's simply pointing out the obvious, isn't she? Why do I bring all of this back up from this? For just, so this is this is happening in Christian circles. And she got everything from, I'm angry at you. Uh, you're a legalist. You're condemning a community about which you have no understanding. Blah, 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 blah. Everything from that to, I still love you, but you hurt my feelings. But all implying some involvement in these sorts of things. How do we get here as Christian people? And you know what? This isn't far away. You remember when we... Uh, had adultery in a ruling elder, he got the support of the Reformed churches. He mumbled something about an appeals court and suddenly everybody got confused about adultery. How does that happen? The overthrow of the first table of the law first. No clear notions about who God is or how he is to be worshipped and adored. No idea about how to reverence his name. Or to treat him as holy. And uh, the overthrow of that great bulwark of piety. The Sabbath day where we're instructed in the school of Christ. The school of holiness. In evangelicalism all of these things have come crashing to the ground. And what do you find? Well maybe we can, maybe we can murder babies in some cases. And well... Come on, live a little. If we're married, aren't all of these things okay? As if there were no chastity in marriage. No limits. So on. Dark, dark, dark. When you have, uh, when you have a large number of Christians on a continent that are not clear about some of those basic issues of morality, and you don't have to go uh, you know, for large proofs or anything, Man does have a conscience still. Conscience cries out against these things. If it's no longer crying, the conscience has become seared. And that is a sign that we are in a very bad way uh, indeed. So um, perhaps I harangue enough. But all of these questions ultimately begin with who is God? And how are we to relate to him? And usually what you'll find is if if you start there and you learn who God is and you have a developing love for God and God's Christ, the love for his mystical body will begin to follow quite naturally. It will follow somewhat uh, uh, by way of course. And one final thing in this very briefly, let us beware of the first motions of murder in our hearts. Uh, so here I don't go after those that would approve of abortion. I'm going to take all of that sort of thing as, as being obvious. We shouldn't kill babies. We shouldn't kill elderly folks. These things are just wrong. But how do these things start? The, you should understand that all of the seeds of all of the sins are already present in our hearts. It's part of our fallen condition. You might just, if you want to simplify it and think of the Ten Commandments, which is a short summary of all of the others, you've got ten seeds planted, sinful seeds, that are just waiting to sprout and grow, flower, and bear fruit. But all ten of them are there, and all of them are ready. And they're constantly sprouting up all the time. If they're not being cropped off at the ground... They're going to tend toward their worst manifestations. 
In other words, it wants to go all the way. It wants to bear fruit. It wants to go all the way. It's worst manifestation. And this is true of all of us. This is true of you. This is true of me. One of the reasons we find it so difficult to imagine, say, Pharaoh murdering Hebrew babies is because God has restrained us. By his grace, he's been lopping it off. He keeps cutting it off every time it wants to sprout up. And so these things become hard for us to imagine. But all of the seeds are there. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. The Lord Jesus teaches us quite plainly that the, uh, that the first motion of murder will sprout uh, from the little stalk of hatred. Unrighteous, ungoverned anger and wrath. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy, destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I wanted to give you the, the preface to this address. Uh, the Lord Jesus expressly denies what all dispensationalists believe. He actually tells us he doesn't want us to think it, and yet all of dispensationalism thinks it. He says, I did not come to destroy or annul the law and the prophets. That's not why I came. And notice the language of verse 17. Think not that. So whatever you might conclude about me and my mission, it cannot be this, that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets, because I haven't. I've not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Now that language of fulfillment, uh, by way of its full scriptural revelation, is, is really indeed and on every level and we might even say ultimately it's to uh, fulfill all righteousness and to do all that was required in the law and the prophets on our behalf so that we might be saved that's actually not what I think he has immediately in view here by fulfillment of it as the succeeding discourse shows he means I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets but to show you the full spiritual significance that was always implied in it. And your teachers have not done a good job. So if you think all there is to the law is these outward manifestations, as has been taught by the scribes and Pharisees, if you think that that's all that there is, you're quite mistaken. The law was always about your hearts. It was always about your hearts. One of the things that's so helpful about this discourse is Jesus is going to, the Ten Commandments are expressed in some of their worst manifestations. But what he does with several of the commandments is he, he traces them back to their seed. Where did it start? What were the motions in the heart that led to some of these gross uh, manifestations? And he actually starts with the Sixth Commandment, our particular interest this evening Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Uh, what Jesus cites here actually, is it's not a scriptural quotation. He's citing, and part of it is, but the form in which he's citing it is the way that it's been taught to them. And that's also clear as it goes. Some of it's just read out of the scriptures, but some of it has got rabbinical gloss attached to it, as it does here. Thou shalt not kill is the sixth commandment. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment is a, is a rabbinical gloss. And it, as far as it goes, it's not bad. Uh, not a bad uh, application, as it were. But Jesus uh, points out here that they must go further. 
because this is not just about the slaying of men's bodies, and that's not where it starts. That's its worst manifestation. But there are uh, infinite degrees of sin that lead up to that heinous act. So he goes on to say, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So the root of murder in the heart is uh, unreasonable, unrighteous anger. It's here described as anger without a cause. The Puritans called this heart murder. Whenever we find, look in and we find Hatred, wrath, malice, bitterness, unforgiveness. These are all various facets. Uh, and if they are left to unchecked to grow, if we don't wage the war in the heart, they will begin to manifest themselves in, uh, in worse ways. And then the Lord Jesus goes on immediately to describe this um, you lose the battle in the heart, the next thing that you'll find is it comes erupting out of the mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we lose the fight in the heart, one of the ways uh, we can detect it in ourselves is uh, it starts to spill out of our mouths, uh, sometimes unwittingly, uh, but it seems to uh, come out irresistibly. And so he goes on to say, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. These are, the, both Raka and Thou fool, this is language of contempt. Both definitions. Um, I think little of you, and I don't like you. You know, but when you when you look at somebody and you fool, you know, it's language of contempt, dismissing you, you know, not worthy of my consideration, my regard, my time, Just dismiss you, fool. Um, so here, what started in the heart, a certain sort of anger with a brother without cause, has now come uh, erupting out of the mouth, a more egregious manifestation. The Puritans had a word for this too, they called it tongue murder. So what has started in the heart, this malice, has now come out in, in malicious words. And remember, uh, morning we recently had from Second Corinthians, uh, within the body of Christ, within the visible church, this is one of the devil's favorite stomping grounds. Uh, Paul actually tells us it's one of the devil's devices that he will take advantage of unforgiveness to create uh, malice in the midst of the body of Christ and to try to work uh, division and dissension, enervating, cutting the hamstrings of the gospel work that the church is uh, supposed to be busy about. I bring all of this up so not to harangue against the, the worse uh, manifestations in our culture, but to warn against the seed that's in every one of us. Don't be naive. The seed is there. And so whenever it sprouts up, it's got to be clipped off. And we need to be doing the heart work. And just a little clue, very much like in gardening, we had this We had this experience this year. You, most of you know I'm not a gardener, but I go out there with my tiller and I till up the ground and and we plant things. And, and so we've got this lovely brown dirt and these little plants and we go on vacation for a week and we come back and it seemed like every plant type in Virginia was living in our garden at this point. And having not caught them early, getting them out, their multitude and their size eventually became so problematic, just let it go, right? You want to be effective in, in waging this kind of spiritual warfare, it's always best when it's a little sprout, clip it off. Because if it gets big and thick and strong, it starts bearing leaves and fruit, getting it out of the ground at that point is going to be very difficult, going to be quite uh, a labor. And it's likely to hurt. Uh, 
when it's pulled out. So clipping a little sprig, not much to it. Pulling out a tree, that's painful work and hard work. With this in view, and by, by way of conclusion, I thought I would just read to you Westminster Larger Catechism 135. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? So that we might remember every about every word in this catechism question could receive a sermon. Uh, but these are sermons that you'll have to preach to yourself uh, in the meantime. I'm sure eventually we'll get around to it. But pick those things that, that seem, seem most applicable to you right now. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit. A sober use of meat, drink, physic or medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations. Interestingly enough, they, they think that your body can have an issue, have a bearing upon uh, the spirit, spiritual condition. If um, we're not uh, caring for ourselves soberly, which is a sin, it can precipitate more sins. By charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous in speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. May the Most High help us to do this heart work. Let us pray.